students and today's technology in mind. There were plenty of multi-billion dollar organizations. In the education space, and I don't think they were innovating in the way that we needed them to and I didn't think we needed them anymore. To me, it's really all about the students and I didn't feel like the students were being served as well as they could. Today Grokit offers many different educational products, but in the beginning Farb followed a lean approach. Grokit built a minimum viable product, which was simply Farb teaching test prep via the popular online web conferencing tool WebEx. He built no custom software, no new technology. He simply attempted to bring his new teaching approach to students via the internet. News about a new kind of private tutoring spread quickly, and within a few months Farb was making a decent living teaching online, with monthly revenues of $10,000 to $15,000. But like many entrepreneurs with ambition, Farb didn't build his MVP just to make a living. He had a vision of a more collaborative, more effective kind of teaching for students everywhere. With his initial traction, he was able to raise money from some of the most prestigious investors in Silicon Valley. When I first met Farb, his company was already on the fast track to success. They had raised venture capital from well-regarded investors, had built an awesome team, and were fresh off an impressive debut at one of Silicon Valley's famous startup competitions. They were extremely process-oriented and disciplined. Their product development followed a rigorous version of the agile development methodology known as extreme programming, described below, thanks to their partnership with a San Francisco-based company called Pivotal Labs. Their early product was hailed by the press as a breakthrough. There was only one problem, they were not seeing sufficient growth in the use of the product by customers. Grokit is an excellent case study because its problems were not a matter of failure of execution or discipline. Following standard agile practice, Grokit's work proceeded in a series of sprints, or one-month iteration cycles. For each sprint, Farb would prioritize the work to be done that month by writing a series of user stories, a technique taken from agile development. Instead of writing a specification for a new feature that described it in technical terms, Farb would write a story that described the feature from the point of view of the customer. That story helped keep the engineers focused on the customer's perspective throughout the development process. Each feature was expressed in plain language in terms everyone could understand whether they had a technical background or not. Again following standard agile practice, Farb was free to reprioritize these stories at any time. As he learned more about what customers wanted, he could move things around in the product backlog, the queue of stories yet to be built. The only limit on this ability to change directions was that he could not interrupt any task that was in progress. Fortunately, the stories were written in such a way that the batch size of work, which I'll discuss in more detail in Chapter 9, was only a day or two. This system is called agile development for a good reason, teams that employ it are able to change direction quickly, stay light on their feet, and be highly responsive to changes in the business requirements of the product. Owner, the manager of the process in this case Farb, who is responsible for prioritizing the stories. How did the team feel at the end of each sprint? They consistently delivered new product features. They would collect feedback from customers in the form of anecdotes and interviews that indicated that at least some customers liked the new features. There was always a certain amount of data that showed improvement, perhaps the total number of customers was increasing, the total number of questions answered by students was going up, or the number of returning customers was increasing. However, I sensed that Farb and his team were left with lingering doubts about the company's overall progress. Was the increase in their numbers actually caused by their development efforts? Or could it be due to other factors, such as mentions of Grokit in the press? When I met the team, I asked them this simple question, how do you know that the prioritization decisions that Farb is making actually make sense? Their answer, that's not our department. Farb makes the decisions, we execute them. At that time Grokit was focused on just one customer segment, prospective business school students who were studying for the GMAT. The 
product allowed students to engage in online study sessions with fellow students who were studying for the same exam. The product was working, the students who completed their studying via Grokit achieved significantly higher scores than they had before. But the Grokit team was struggling with the age-old startup problems, how do we know which features to prioritize? How can we get more customers to sign up and pay? How can we get out the word about our product? I put this question to Fab. how confident are you that you are making the right decisions in terms of establishing priorities? Like most startup founders, he was looking at the available data and making the best educated guesses he could. But this left a lot of room for ambiguity and doubt. Fab believed in his vision thoroughly and completely, yet he was starting to question whether his company was on pace to realize that vision. The product improved every day, but Fab wanted to make sure those improvements mattered to customers. I believe he deserves a lot of credit for realizing this. Unlike many visionaries, who cling to their original vision no matter what, Fab was willing to put his vision to the test. Fab worked hard to sustain his team's belief that Grokit was destined for success. He was worried that morale would suffer if anyone thought that the person steering the ship was uncertain about which direction to go. Fab himself wasn't sure if his team would embrace a true learning culture. After all, this was part of the grand bargain of agile development, engineers agree to adapt the product to the business's constantly changing requirements but are not responsible for the quality of those business decisions. Agile is an efficient system of development from the point of view of the developers. It allows them to stay focused on creating features and technical designs. An attempt to introduce the need to learn into that process could undermine productivity. Lean manufacturing faced similar problems when it was introduced in factories. Managers were used to focusing on the utilization rate of each machine. Factories were designed to keep machines running at full capacity as much of the time as possible. Viewed from the perspective of the machine, that is efficient, but from the point of view of the productivity of the entire factory, it is wildly inefficient at times. As they say in systems, Theory that which optimizes one part of the system necessarily undermines the system as a whole. What Fab and his team didn't realize was that Grokit's progress was being measured by vanity metrics, the total number of customers and the total number of questions answered. That was what was causing his team to spin its wheels, those metrics gave the team the sensation of forward motion even though the company was making little progress. What's interesting is how closely Fab's method followed superficial aspects of the lean startup learning milestones, they shipped an early product and established some baseline metrics. They had relatively short iterations, each of which was judged by its ability to improve customer metrics. However, because Grokit was using the wrong kinds of metrics, the startup was not genuinely improving. Fab was frustrated in his efforts to learn from customer feedback. In every cycle, the type of metrics his team was focused on would change, one month they would look at gross usage numbers, another month registration numbers, and so on. Those metrics would go up and down seemingly on their own. He couldn't draw clear cause and effect inferences. Prioritizing work correctly in such an environment is extremely challenging. Fab could have asked his data analyst to investigate a particular question. For example, when we shipped Feature X, did it affect customer behavior? But that would have required tremendous time and effort. When, exactly, did Feature X ship? Which customers were exposed to it? Was anything else launched around that same time? Were there seasonal factors that might be skewing the data? Finding these answers would have required parsing reams and reams of data. The answer often would come weeks after the question had been asked. In the meantime, the team would have moved on to new priorities and new questions that needed urgent attention. Compared to a lot of startups, the Grokit team had a huge advantage. They were tremendously disciplined. A disciplined team may apply the Wrong methodology but can shift gears quickly once it discovers its error. Most important, a disciplined team can experiment with its own working style and draw meaningful conclusions.
cohorts and split tests. Grokit changed the metrics they used to evaluate success in two ways. Instead of looking at gross metrics, Grokit switched to cohort-based metrics, and instead of looking for cause-and-effect relationships after the fact, Grokit would launch each new feature as a true split-test experiment. A split-test experiment is one in which different versions of a product are offered to customers at the same time. By observing the changes in behavior between the two groups, one can make inferences about the impact of the different variations. This technique was pioneered by direct mail advertisers. For example, consider a company that sends customers a catalog of products to buy, such as Lands End or Crate and Barrel. If you wanted to test a catalog design, you could send a new version of it to 50% of the customers and send the old standard catalog to the other 50%. To assure a scientific result, both catalogs would contain identical products, the only difference would be the changes to the design. To figure out if the new design was effective, all you would have to do was keep track of the sales figures for both groups of customers. This technique is sometimes called A-B testing after the practice of assigning letter names to each variation. Although split testing often is thought of as a marketing-specific, or even a direct marketing-specific, practice, lean startups incorporate it directly into product development. These changes led to an immediate change in FARB's understanding of the business. Split testing often uncovers surprising things. For example, many features that make the product better in the eyes of engineers and designers have no impact on customer behavior. This was the case at Grokit, as it has been in every company I have seen adopt this technique. Although working with split tests seems to be more difficult because it requires extra accounting and metrics to keep track of each variation, it almost always saves tremendous amounts of time in the long run by eliminating work that doesn't matter to customers. Split testing also helps teams refine their understanding of what customers want and don't want. Grokit's team constantly added new ways for their customers to interact with each other in the hope that those social communication tools would increase the product's value. Inherent in those Efforts was the belief that customers desired more communication during their studying. When split testing revealed that the extra features did not change customer behavior, it called that belief into question. The questioning inspired the team to seek a deeper understanding of what customers really wanted. They brainstormed new ideas for product experiments that might have more impact. In fact, many of these ideas were not new. They had simply been overlooked because the company was focused on building social tools. As a result, Grokit tested an intensive solo studying mode, complete with quests and game-like levels, so that students could have the choice of studying by themselves or with others. Just as in Farb's original classroom, this proved extremely effective. Without the discipline of split testing, the company might not have had this realization. In fact, over time, through dozens of tests, it became clear that the key to student engagement was to offer them a combination of social and solo features. Students preferred having a choice of how to study. Kanban Following the lean manufacturing principle of Kanban, or capacity constraint, Grokit changed the product prioritization process. Under the new system, user stories were not considered complete until they led to validated learning. Thus, stories could be catalogued as being in one of four states of development, in the product backlog, actively being built, done, feature complete from a technical point of view, or in the process of being validated. Validated was defined as knowing whether the story was a good idea to have been done in the first place. This validation usually would come in the form of a split test showing a change in customer behavior but also might include customer interviews or surveys. The Kanban rule permitted only so many stories in each of the four states. As stories flow from one state to the other, the buckets fill up. Once a bucket becomes full, it cannot accept more stories. Only when a story has been validated can it be removed from the Kanban board. If the validation fails, and it turns out the story is a bad idea, 
the relevant feature is removed from the product, see the chart on this page. Kanban diagram of work as it progresses from stage to stage. No bucket can contain more than three projects at a time. Please view the illustration. Work on A begins. DNER in development. F awaits validation. Please view the illustration. F is validated. DNE await validation. G, H, I are new tasks to be undertaken. B and C are being built. A completes development. Please view the illustration. B and C have been built, but under Kanban, cannot be moved to the next bucket for validation until A, D, E have been validated. Work cannot begin on H and I until space opens up in the buckets ahead. I have implemented this system with several teams, and the initial result is always frustrating. Each bucket fill fills up, starting with the validated bucket and moving on to the done bucket, until it's not possible to start any more work. Teams that are used to measuring their productivity narrowly, by the number of stories they are delivering, feel stuck. The only way to start work on new features is to investigate some of the stories that are done but haven't been validated. That often requires non-engineering efforts, talking to customers, looking at split test data, and the like. Pretty soon everyone gets the hang of it. This progress occurs in fits and starts at first. Engineering may finish a big batch of work, followed by extensive testing and validation. As engineers look for ways to increase their productivity, they start to realize that if they include the validation exercise from the beginning, the whole team can be more productive. For example, why build a new feature that is not part of a split test experiment? It may save you time in the short run, but it will take more time later to test, during the validation phase. The same logic applies to a story that an engineer doesn't understand. Under the old system, he or she would just build it and find out later what it was for. In the new system, that behavior is clearly counterproductive, without a clear hypothesis, how can a story ever be validated? We saw this behavior at IMVU, too. I once saw a junior engineer face down a senior executive over a relatively minor change. The engineer insisted that the new feature be split-tested, just like any other. His peers backed him up, it was considered absolutely obvious that all features should be routinely tested, no matter who was commissioning them. Embarrassingly, all too often I was the executive in question. A solid process lays the foundation for a healthy culture, one where ideas are evaluated by merit and not by job title. Most important, teams working in this system begin to measure their productivity according to validated learning, not in terms of the production of new features. Hypothesis testing at Grokit When Grokit made this transition, the results were dramatic. In one case, they decided to test one of their major features, called lazy registration, to see if it was worth the heavy investment they were making in ongoing support. They were confident in this feature because lazy registration is considered one of the design best practices for online services. In this system, Customers do not have to register for the service up front. Instead, they immediately begin using the service and are asked to register only after they have had a chance to experience the service's benefit. For a student, lazy registration works like this. When you come to the Grokit website, you are immediately placed in a study session with other students working on the same test. You don't have to give your name, email address, or credit card number. There is nothing to prevent you from jumping in and getting started immediately. For Grokit, this was essential to testing one of its core assumptions, that customers would be willing to adopt this new way of learning only if they could see proof that it was working early on. As a result of this hypothesis, Grokit's design required that it manage three classes of users, unregistered guests, registered, trial, guests, and customers who had paid for the premium version of the product. This design required significant extra work to build and maintain, the more classes of users there are, the more work is required to keep track of them, and the more marketing effort is required to create the right incentives to entice 
customers to upgrade to the next class. Grokit had undertaken this extra effort because lazy registration was considered an industry best practice. I encouraged the team to try a simple split test. They took one cohort of customers and required that they register immediately, based on nothing more than Grokit's marketing materials. To their surprise, this cohort's behavior was exactly the same as that of the lazy registration group, they had the same rate of registration, activation, and subsequent retention. In other words, the extra effort of lazy registration was a complete waste even though it was considered an industry best practice. Even more important than reducing waste was the insight that this test suggested, customers were basing their decision about Grokit on something other than their use of the product. Think about this. Think about the cohort of customers who were required to register for the product before entering a study session with other students. They had very little information about the product, nothing more, than was presented on Grokit's homepage and registration page. By contrast, the lazy registration group had a tremendous amount of information about the product because they had used it. Yet despite this information disparity, customer behavior was exactly the same. This suggested that improving Grokit's positioning and marketing might have a more significant impact on attracting new customers than would adding new features. This was just the first of many important experiments Grokit was able to run. Since those early days, they have expanded their customer base dramatically, they now offer test prep for numerous standardized tests, including the GMAT, SAT, ACT, and GIE as well as online math and English courses for students in grades 7 through 12. Grokit continues to evolve its process, seeking continuous improvement at every turn. With more than 20 employees in its San Francisco office, Grokit continues to operate with the same deliberate, disciplined approach that has been their hallmark all along. They have helped close to a million students and are sure to help millions more. The value of the three A's these examples from Grokit demonstrate each of the three A's of metrics, actionable, accessible, and auditable. Actionable For a report to be considered actionable, it must demonstrate clear cause and effect. Otherwise, it is a vanity metric. The reports that Grokit's team began to use to judge their learning milestones made it extremely clear what actions would be necessary to replicate the results. By contrast, vanity metrics fail this criterion. Take the number of hits to a company website. Let's say we have 40,000 hits this month, a new record. What do we need to do to get more hits? Well, that depends. Where are the new hits coming from? Is it from 40,000 new customers or from one guy with an extremely active web browser? Are the hits the result of a new marketing campaign or PR push? What is a hit, anyway? Does each page in the browser count as one hit, or do all the embedded images and multimedia content count as well? Those who have sat in a meeting debating the units of measurement in a report will recognize this problem. Vanity metrics wreak havoc because they prey on a weakness of the human mind. In my experience, when the numbers go up, people think the improvement was caused by their actions, by whatever they were working on at the time. That is why it's so common to have a meeting in which marketing thinks the numbers went up because of a new PR or marketing effort and engineering thinks the better numbers are the result of the new features it added. Finding out what is actually going on is extremely costly, and so most managers simply move on, doing the best they can to form their own judgment on the basis of their experience and the collective intelligence in the room. Unfortunately, when the numbers go down, it results in a very different reaction now it's somebody else's fault. Thus, most team members or departments live in a world where their department is constantly making things better, only to have their hard work sabotaged by other departments. That just don't get it. Is it any wonder these departments develop their own? Distinct language, jargon, culture, and defense mechanisms against the bozos working down the hall. Actionable metrics are the antidote to this problem. When cause and effect is clearly understood, people are better able to learn from their actions. 
Human beings are innately talented learners when given a clear and objective assessment. Accessible All too many reports are not understood by the employees and managers who are supposed to use them to guide their decision-making. Unfortunately, most managers do not respond to this complexity by working hand-in-hand -hand with the data warehousing team to simplify the reports so that they can understand them better. Departments too often spend their energy learning how to use data to get what they want rather than as genuine feedback to guide their future actions. There is an antidote to this misuse of data. First, make the reports as simple as possible so that everyone understands them. Remember the saying metrics are people, too. The easiest way to make reports. Comprehensible is to use tangible, concrete units. What is a website hit? Nobody is really sure, but everyone knows what a person visiting the website is, one can practically picture those people sitting at their computers. This is why cohort-based reports are the gold standard of learning metrics, they turn complex actions into people-based reports. Each cohort analysis says, among the people who used our product in this period, here's how many of them exhibited each of the behaviors we care about. In the IMVU example, we saw four behaviors, downloading the product, logging into the product from one's computer, engaging in a chat with other customers, and upgrading to the paid version of the product. In other words, the report deals with people and their actions, which are far more useful than piles of data points. For example, think about how hard it would have been to tell if IMVU was being successful if we had reported only on the total. Number of person-to-person -person conversations. Let's say we have 10,000 conversations in a period. Is that good? Is that one person being very, very social? Or is it 10,000 people each trying the product one time and then giving up? There's no way to know without creating a more detailed report. As the gross numbers get larger, accessibility becomes more and more important. It is hard to visualize what it means if the number of website hits goes down from 250,000 in one month to 200,000 the next month, but most people understand immediately what it means to lose 50,000 customers. That's practically a whole stadium full of people who are abandoning the product. Accessibility also refers to widespread access to the reports. Grokit did this especially well. Every day their system automatically generated a document containing the latest data for every single one of their split test experiments and other leap of faith metrics. This document was mailed to every employee of the company, they all always had a fresh copy in there. Email inboxes. The reports were well laid out and easy to read, with each experiment and its results explained in plain English. Another way to make reports accessible is to use a technique we developed at IMVU. Instead of housing the analytics or data in a separate system, our reporting data and its infrastructure were considered part of the product itself and were owned by the product development team. The reports were available on our website, accessible to anyone with an employee account. Each employee could log into the system at any time, choose from a list of all current and past experiments, and see a simple one-page summary of the results. Over time, those one-page summaries became the de facto standard for settling product arguments throughout the organization. When people needed evidence to support something they had learned, they would bring a printout with them to the relevant meeting confident that everyone they showed it to would understand its meaning. Auditable When informed that their pet project is a failure, most of us are tempted to blame the messenger, the data, the manager, the gods, or anything else we can think of. That's why the third A of good metrics, auditable, is so essential. We must ensure that the data is credible to employees. The employees at IMVU would brandish one-page reports to demonstrate what they had learned to settle arguments, but the process often wasn't so smooth. Most of the time, when a manager, developer, or team was confronted with results that would kill a pet project, the loser of the argument would challenge the veracity of the data. Such challenges are more common than most managers would admit, and unfortunately, most data reporting systems are not designed to answer them successfully. 
Sometimes this is the result of a well-intentioned but misplaced desire to protect the privacy of customers. More often, the lack of such supporting documentation is simply a matter of neglect. Most data reporting systems are not built by product development teams, whose job is to prioritize and build product features. They are built by business managers and analysts. Managers who must use these systems can only check to see if the reports are mutually consistent. They all too often lack a way to test if the data is consistent with reality. The solution. First, remember that metrics are people, too. We need to be able to test the data by hand, in the messy real world, by talking to customers. This is the only way to be able to check if the reports contain true facts. Managers need the ability to spot-check the data with real customers. It also has a second benefit, systems that provide this level of auditability give managers and entrepreneurs the opportunity to gain insights into why customers are behaving the way the data indicate. Second, those building reports must make sure the mechanisms that generate the reports are not too complex. Whenever possible, reports should be drawn directly from the master data, rather than from an intermediate system which reduces opportunities for error. I have noticed that every time a team has one of its judgments or assumptions overturned as a result of a technical problem with the data, its confidence, morale, and discipline are undermined. When we watch entrepreneurs succeed in the myth-making world of Hollywood, books, and magazines, the story is always structured the same way. First, we see the plucky protagonist having an epiphany, hatching a great new idea. We learn about his or her character and personality, how he or she came to be in the right place at the right time, and how he or she took the dramatic leap to start a business. Then the photo montage begins. It's usually short, just a few minutes of time-lapse photography or narrative. We see the protagonist building a team, maybe working in a lab, writing on whiteboards, closing sales, pounding on a few keyboards. At the end of the montage, the founders are successful, and the story can move on to more interesting fare, how to split the spoils of their success, who will appear on magazine covers, who sues whom, and implications for the future. Unfortunately, the real work that determines the success of startups happens during the photo montage. It doesn't make the cut in terms of the big story because it is too boring. Only 5% of entrepreneurship is the big idea, the business model, the whiteboard strategizing, and the splitting up of the spoils. The other 95% is the gritty work that is measured by innovation accounting, product prioritization decisions, deciding which customers to target or listen to, and having the courage to subject a grand vision to constant testing and feedback. One decision stands out above all others as the most difficult, the most time-consuming, and the biggest source of waste for most startups. We all must face this fundamental test, deciding when to pivot and when to persevere. To understand what happens during the photo montage, we have to understand how to pivot, and that is the subject of Chapter 8. 8. Pivot, or Persevere. Every entrepreneur eventually faces an overriding challenge in developing a successful product deciding when to pivot and when to persevere. Everything that has been discussed so far is a prelude to a seemingly simple question. Are we making sufficient progress to believe that our original strategic hypothesis is correct, or do we need to make a major change? That change is called a pivot, a structured course correction designed to test a new fundamental hypothesis about the product, strategy, and engine of growth. Because of the scientific methodology that underlies the lean startup, there is often a misconception that it offers a rigid clinical formula for making pivot or persevere decisions. This is not true. There is no way to remove the human element, vision, intuition, judgment from the practice of entrepreneurship, nor would that be desirable. My goal in advocating a scientific approach to the creation of startups is to channel human creativity into its most productive form, and there is no bigger destroyer of creative potential than the misguided decision to persevere.
Companies that cannot bring themselves to pivot to a new direction on the basis of feedback from the marketplace can get stuck in the land of the living dead, neither growing enough nor dying, consuming resources and commitment from employees and other stakeholders but not moving ahead. There is good news about our reliance on judgment, though. We are able to learn, we are innately creative, and we have a remarkable ability to see the signal in the noise. In fact, we are so good at this that sometimes we see signals that aren't there. The heart of the scientific method is the realization that although human judgment may be faulty, we can improve our judgment by subjecting our theories to repeated testing. Startup productivity is not about cranking out more widgets or features. It is about aligning our efforts with a business and product that are working to create value and drive growth. In other words, successful pivots put us on a path toward growing a sustainable business. Innovation accounting leads to faster pivots. To see this process in action, meet David Bonetti, the CEO of Votizen. David has had a long career helping to bring the American political process into the 21st century. In the early 1990s, he helped build USA.Government, the first portal for the federal government. He's also experienced some classic startup failures. When it came time to build Votizen, David was determined to avoid betting the farm on his vision. David wanted to tackle the problem of civic participation in the political process. His first product concept was a social network of verified voters, a place where people passionate about civic causes could get together, share ideas, and recruit their friends. David built his first minimum viable product for just over $1,200 in about three months and launched it. David wasn't building something that nobody wanted. In fact, from its earliest days, Votizen was able to attract early adopters who loved the core. Concept Like all entrepreneurs, David had to refine his product and business. Model what made David's challenge especially hard was that he had to make those pivots in the face of moderate success. David's initial concept involved four big leaps of faith. 1. Customers would be interested enough in the social network to sign up, registration. 2. Votizen would be able to verify them as registered voters. Activation. 3. Customers who were verified voters would engage with the site's activism tools over time. Retention. 4. Engaged customers would tell their friends about the service and recruit them into civic causes. Referral. 3 months and $1,200 later, David's first MVP was in customers' hands. In the initial cohorts, 5% signed up for the service and 17% verified their registered voter status, see the chart below. The numbers were so low that there wasn't enough data to tell what sort of engagement or referral would occur. It was time to start iterating. Please view the illustration. David spent the next two months and another $5,000 split testing new product features, messaging, and improving the product's design to make it easier to use. Those tests showed dramatic improvements, going from a 5% registration rate to 17% and from a 17% activation rate to over 90%. Such is the power of split testing. This optimization gave David a critical mass of customers with which to measure the next two leaps of faith. However, as shown in the chart below, those numbers proved to be even more discouraging. David achieved a referral rate of only 4% and a retention rate of 5%. Please view the illustration. David knew he had to do more development and testing. For the next three months he continued to optimize, split test, and refine his pitch. He talked to customers, held focus groups, and did countless A-B experiments. As was explained in Chapter 7, in a split test, different versions of a product are offered to different customers at the same time. By observing the changes in behavior between the two groups, one can make inferences about the impact of the different variations. As shown in the chart below, the referral rate nudged up slightly to 6% and the retention rate went up to 
A disappointed David had spent eight months and $20,000 to build a product that wasn't living up to the growth model he'd hoped for. Please view the illustration. David faced the difficult challenge of deciding whether to pivot or persevere. This is one of the hardest decisions entrepreneurs face. The goal of creating learning milestones is not to make the decision easy, it is to make sure that there is relevant data in the room when it comes time to decide. Remember, at this point David has had many customer conversations. He has plenty of learning that he can use to rationalize the failure he has experienced with the current product. That's exactly what many entrepreneurs do. In Silicon Valley, we call this experience getting stuck in the land of the living dead. It happens when a company has achieved a modicum of success, just enough to stay alive, but is not living up to the expectations of its founders and investors. Such companies are a terrible drain of human energy. Out of loyalty, the employees and founders don't want to give in, they feel that success might be just around the corner. David had two advantages that helped him avoid this fate. 1. Despite being committed to a significant vision, he had done his best to launch early and iterate. Thus, he was facing a pivot or persevere moment just eight months into the life of his company. The more money, time, and creative energy that has been sunk into an idea, the harder it is to pivot. David had done well to avoid that trap. 2. David had identified his leap of faith questions explicitly at the outset and, more important, had made quantitative predictions about each of them. It would not have been difficult for him to declare success retroactively from that initial venture. After all, some of his metrics, such as activation, were doing quite well. In terms of gross metrics such as total usage, the company had positive growth. It is only because David focused on actionable metrics for each of his leap of faith questions that he was able to accept that his company was failing. In addition, because David had not wasted energy on premature PR, he was able to make this determination without public embarrassment or distraction. Failure is a prerequisite to learning. The problem with the notion of shipping a product and then seeing what happens is that you are guaranteed to succeed at seeing what happens. But then what? As soon as you have a handful of customers, you're likely to have five opinions about what to do next. Which should you listen to? Votizen's results were okay, but they were not good enough. David felt that although his optimization was improving the metrics, they were not trending toward a model that would sustain the business overall. But like all good entrepreneurs, he did not give up prematurely. David decided to pivot and test a new hypothesis. A pivot requires that we keep one foot rooted in what we've learned so far, while making a fundamental change in strategy in order to seek even greater validated learning. In this case, David's direct contact with customers proved essential. He had heard three recurring bits of feedback in his testing. 1. I always wanted to get more involved, this makes it so much easier. 2. The fact that you prove I'm a voter matters. 3. There's no one here. What's the point of coming back? 1. David decided to undertake what I call a zoom-in pivot, refocusing the product on what previously had been considered just one feature of a larger whole. Think of the customer comments above, customers like the concept, they like the voter registration technology, but they aren't getting value out of the social networking part of the product. David decided to change Votizen into a product called at 2 Government, a social lobbying platform. Rather than get customers integrated in a civic social network, at 2 Government allows them to contact their elected representatives quickly and easily via existing social networks such as Twitter. The customer engages digitally, but at 2 Government translates that digital contact into paper form. Members of Congress receive old-fashioned printed letters and petitions as a result. In other words, at 2 government translates the high-tech world of its customers into the low-tech world of politics. At 2 government had a slightly different set of leap-of-faith questions to answer. It still depended on customers signing up, verifying their voter status, and referring their friends, but the growth model changed. 
Instead of relying on an engagement-driven business, sticky growth, at two government was more transactional. David's hypothesis was that passionate activists would be willing to pay money to have at two government facilitate contacts on behalf of voters who cared about their issues. David's new MVP took four months and another $30,000. He'd now spent a grand total of $50,000 and worked for 12 months. But the results from his next round of testing were dramatic, registration rate 42%, activation 83%, retention 21% and referral a whopping 54%. However, the number of activists willing to pay was less than 1%. The value of each transaction was far too low to sustain a profitable business even. After David had done his best to optimize it. Before we get to David's next pivot, notice how convincingly he was able to demonstrate validated learning. He hoped that with this new product, he would be able to improve his leap of faith metrics dramatically, and he did, see the chart below. Please view the illustration. He did this not by working harder but by working smarter, taking his product development resources and applying them to a new and different product. Compared with the previous four months of optimization, the new four months of pivoting had resulted in a dramatically higher return on investment, but David was still stuck in an age-old entrepreneurial trap. His metrics and product were improving, but not fast enough. David pivoted again. This time, rather than rely on activists to pay money to drive contacts, he went to large organizations, professional fundraisers, and big companies, which all have a professional or business interest in political campaigning. The companies seemed extremely eager to use and pay for David's service, and David quickly signed letters of intent to build the functionality they needed. In this pivot, David did what I call a customer segment pivot, keeping the functionality of the product the same but changing the audience focus. He focused on who pays, from consumers to businesses and non-profit organizations. In other words, David went from being a business to consumer, B2C, company to being a business to business, B2B, company. In the process he changed his planned growth model, as well to one where he would be able to fund growth out of the profits generated from each B2B sale. Three months later, David had built the functionality he had promised, based on those early letters of intent. But when he went back to companies to collect his checks, he discovered more problems. Company after company procrastinated, delayed, and ultimately passed up the opportunity. Although they had been excited enough to sign a letter of intent, closing a real sale was much more difficult. It turned out that those companies were not early adopters. On the basis of the letters of intent, David had increased his headcount, taking on additional sales staff and engineers in anticipation of having to service higher margin business-to-business -business accounts. When the sales didn't materialize, the whole team had to work harder to try to find revenue elsewhere. Yet no matter how many sales calls they went on and no matter how much optimization they did to the product, the model wasn't working. Returning to his leap of faith questions, David concluded that the results refuted his business-to-business -business hypothesis, and so he decided to pivot once. Again. All this time, David was learning and gaining feedback from his potential customers, but he was in an unsustainable situation. You can't pay staff with what you've learned, and raising money at that juncture would have escalated the problem. Raising money without early traction is not a certain thing. If he had been able to raise money, he could have kept the company going but would have been pouring money into a value-destroying engine of growth. He would be in a high-pressure situation, use investors' cash to make the engine of growth work or risk having to shut down the company, or be replaced. David decided to reduce staff and pivot again, this time attempting what I call a platform pivot. Instead of selling an application to one customer at a time, David envisioned a new growth model inspired by Google's AdWords platform. He built a self-serve sales platform where anyone could become a customer with just a credit card. Thus, no matter what cause you were passionate about, you could go to At2Gov's website and At2Government would help you find new people to get involved. As always, the new people were verified registered voters, a 
and so their opinions carried weight with elected officials. The new product took only one additional month to build and immediately showed results, 51% sign-up rate, 92% activation rate, 28% retention rate, 64% referral rate, see the chart below. Most important, 11% of these customers were willing to pay 20 cents per message. Most. Important, this was the beginning of an actual growth model that could work. Receiving 20 cents per message might not sound like much, but the high referral rate meant that a two government could grow its traffic without spending significant marketing money. This is the viral engine of growth. Please view the illustration. Voters and story exhibit some common patterns. One of the most important to note is the acceleration of MVPs. The first MVP took eight months, the next four months, then three, then one. Each time David was able to validate or refute his next hypothesis faster than before. How can one explain this acceleration? It is tempting to credit it to the product development work that had been going on. Many features had been created, and with them a fair amount of infrastructure. Therefore, each time the company pivoted, it didn't have to start from scratch. But this is not the whole story. For one thing, much of the product had to be discarded between pivots. Worse, the product that remained was classified as a legacy product. One that was no longer suited to the goals of the company. As is usually the case, the effort required to reform a legacy product took extra work. Counteracting these forces were the hard-won lessons David had learned through each milestone. Votizen accelerated its MVP process because it was learning critical things about its customers, market, and strategy. Today, two years after its inception, Votizen is doing well. They recently raised $1.5 million from Facebook's initial investor Peter Till, one of the very few consumer internet investments he has made in recent years. Votizen's system now can process voter identity in real time for 47 states representing 94% of the US population and has delivered tens of thousands of messages to Congress. The Startup Visa campaign used Votizen's tools to introduce the Startup Visa Act, S.565, which is the first legislation. Introduced into the Senate solely as a result of social lobbying. These activities have attracted the attention of established Washington consultants who are seeking to employ Votizen's tools in future political campaigns. David Bonetti sums up his experience building a lean startup. In 2003 I started a company in roughly the same space as I'm in today. I had roughly the same domain expertise and industry credibility, fresh off the USA. government success. But back then my company was a total failure despite consuming significantly greater investment, while now I have a business making money and closing deals. Back then I did the traditional linear product development model, releasing an amazing product, it really was, after 12 months of development, only to find that no one would buy it. This time I produced four versions in 12 weeks and generated my first sale relatively soon after that. And it isn't just market timing, two other companies that launched in a similar space in 2003 subsequently sold for tens of millions of dollars, and others in 2010 followed a linear model straight to the dead pool. A startup's runway is the number of pivots it can still make. Seasoned entrepreneurs often speak of the runway that their startup has left, the amount of time remaining in which a startup must either achieve liftoff or fail. This usually is defined as the remaining cash in the bank divided by the monthly burn rate, or net drain on that account balance. For example, a startup with $1 million in the bank that is spending $100,000 per month has a projected runway of 10 months. When startups start to run low on cash, they can extend the runway two ways, by cutting costs or by raising additional funds. But when entrepreneurs cut costs indiscriminately, they are as liable to cut the costs that are allowing the company to get through its build-measure-learn feedback loop as they are to cut waste. If the cuts result in a slowdown to this feedback loop, all they have accomplished is to help the startup go out of business more slowly. The true measure of runway is how many pivots a startup has left, 
the number of opportunities it has to make a fundamental change to its business strategy. Measuring runway through the lens of pivots rather than that of time suggests another way to extend that runway, get to each pivot faster. In other words, the startup has to find ways to achieve the same amount of validated learning at lower cost or in a shorter time. All the techniques in the lean startup model that have been discussed so far have this as their overarching goal. Pivots require courage. Ask most entrepreneurs who have decided to pivot and they will tell you that they wish they had made the decision sooner. I believe there are three reasons why this happens. First, vanity metrics can allow entrepreneurs to form false conclusions and live in their own private reality. This is particularly damaging to the decision to pivot because it robs teams of the belief that it is necessary to change. When people are forced to change against their better judgment, the process is harder, takes longer, and leads to a less decisive outcome. Second, when an entrepreneur has an unclear hypothesis, it's almost impossible to experience complete failure, and without failure there is usually no impetus to embark on the radical change a pivot requires. As I mentioned earlier, the failure of the launch it and see what happens approach should now be evident, you will always succeed in seeing what happens. Except in rare cases, the early results will be ambiguous, and you won't know whether to pivot or persevere, whether to change direction or stay the course. Third, many entrepreneurs are afraid. Acknowledging failure can lead to dangerously low morale. Most entrepreneurs' biggest fear is not that their vision will prove to be wrong. More terrifying is the thought that the vision might be deemed wrong without having been given a real chance to prove itself. This fear drives much of the resistance to the minimum viable product, split testing, and other techniques to test hypotheses. Ironically, this fear drives up the risk because testing doesn't occur until the vision is fully represented. However, by that time it is often too late to pivot because funding is running out. To avoid this fate, entrepreneurs need to face their fears and be willing to fail, often in a public way. In fact, entrepreneurs who have a high profile, either because of personal fame or because they are operating as part of a famous brand, face an extreme version of this problem. A new startup in Silicon Valley called Path was started by experienced. Entrepreneurs, Dave Morin, who previously had overseen Facebook's platform initiative, Dustin Miral, product designer and co-creator of Maxter, and Sean Fanning of Napster fame. They decided to release a minimum viable product in 2010. Because of the high-profile nature of its founders, the MVP attracted significant press attention, especially from technology and startup blogs. Unfortunately, their product was not targeted at technology early adopters, and as a result, the early blogger reaction was quite negative. Many entrepreneurs fail to launch because they are afraid of this kind of reaction, worrying that it will harm the morale of the entire company. The allure of positive press, especially in our home industry, is quite strong. Luckily, the PATH team had the courage to ignore this fear and focus on what their customers said. As a result, they were able to get essential early feedback from actual customers. PATH's goal is to create a more personal social network that maintains its quality over time. Many people have had the experience of being overconnected on existing social networks, sharing with past co-workers, high school friends, relatives, and colleagues. Such broad groups make it hard to share intimate moments. PATH took an unusual approach. For example, it limited the number of connections to 50, based on brain research by the anthropologist Robin Dunbar at Oxford. His research suggests that 50 is roughly the number of personal relationships in any person's life at any given time. For members of the tech press, and many tech early adopters, this artificial constraint on the number of connections was anathema. They routinely use new social networking products with thousands of connections. 50 seemed way too small. As a result, PATH endured a lot of public criticism, which was hard to ignore. But customers flocked to the platform, and their feedback was decidedly different from the negativity in the press. 
Customers liked the intimate moments and consistently wanted features that were not on the original product roadmap, such as the ability to share how friends' pictures made them feel and the ability to share video moments. Dave Morin summed up his experience this way. The reality of our team and our backgrounds built up a massive wall of expectations. I don't think it would have mattered what we would have released, we would have been met with expectations that are hard to live up to. But to us it just meant we needed to get our product and our vision out into the market broadly in order to get feedback and to begin iteration. We humbly test our theories and our approach to see what the market thinks. Listen to feedback honestly. And continue to innovate in the directions we think will create meaning in the world. Path's story 